0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Vanessa, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. The reading comes from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial... so we urge Titus just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part but since you excel in everything in faith in speech in knowledge in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you see that you also excel in this grace of giving I am not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that the others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty Supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you this morning. Uh, welcome if you're new or visiting. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister, and um, I, uh, ooh, it's loud. Uh, thank you to the 7:45 congregation, particularly for, uh, I guess, cancelling your service this morning and coming to church with us uh, at 9:45. It's lovely, and it was nice to sing a hymn together. So thanks to Graham and the crew who led us in that. We um, we're about to reflect on that portion of Scripture in the context of our series, uh, our vision and mission series. But let me pray for us that God might prepare our hearts. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that now as we reflect on it, your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, uh, shaping our thinking, our desires, and our living in accordance with it, so that we might be more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you're here for the first time after a few weeks, we've been in this, uh, what we call, Vision Month. It's just a way of thinking about our the, the priorities of our church and our purpose and place in this area of uh, of Sydney and what that looks like as we live it out we come to the last week we've actually spent the weeks thinking about primarily the characteristics that we think should we should inhabit we should we should should flower and flourish in our church life we've been looking at four praying bringing growing and today it's celebrating uh, celebrating together. I wonder how you think what images come to mind when you think about celebrating. Uh, perhaps it's, it's this kind of image, right? I mean, the Coke, Coca-Cola company, uh, their common marketing campaign is around celebration moments. And when we think about celebrating, perhaps if you're like me, your first inclination is to reflect to think of some kind of moment like this. In fact, we're going to have a little moment like this later at, um, uh, over brunch when we share a meal together. And, and well, we won't have any Coke, but uh, parents can be relieved. But we will share a meal together. We'll, we'll chat, we'll laugh, we'll catch up. That's what we think about as celebrating. Now, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, But I wonder how the Bible thinks about the key communal moments of God's people because that's really what we're trying to capture in this fourth uh, description of church life, celebrating together. How does the Bible conceive of celebrating? And to do that, I've chosen the passage from 2 Corinthians, which people often describe as the Macedonian example. It's one of the key examples of God's people together in pursuit of something, it's, it's an example of the life together, and it's a striking one. It's perhaps not the example that we immediately resonate with, but it's striking nonetheless and worth reflection on. Uh, here's what Paul says about the Macedonian church in their life together, in the midst of very severe trial. This is Macedonian church is like the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica, for example, of which we have other letters in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. So those two churches are some of the churches he's talking about. And he says, in the midst of severe trial, economic trial they were generally poorer churches actually poorer groups of people those who attended christian churches in the first century and also they were heavily persecuted we know from the book of acts because when paul went there he was heavily persecuted particularly in philippi and so there's a severe trial this is the circumstance in which their group of people meets together and yet they have overflowing joy he says Uh, We pick this up in the book of Philippians itself, this great, beautiful, joyful letter. He says they have overflowing joy and yet extreme poverty, and these two things meet in rich generosity. This is very, very striking, actually. He says they're in a hard place, a hard time, severely impoverished, and yet when their rich joy meets that, it overwhelms. It comes in overwhelming generosity, overflowing generosity, rich generosity. It's not the example we'd often conceive of. In fact, Paul then goes on to say he gives he gives more detail to the nature of this this overwhelming generosity. He says they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Paul was collecting. He was collecting from the surrounding churches a, collect, a financial collection to go back to the Church of Jerusalem, which was a, a very large church, but a church filled with poor people. And so, they, even though they were large, they actually themselves had limited financial resources. And so, Paul has been going; he's he's been sending letters, he's been contacting churches in the in the region which who he has connections with, and saying, "Will you support the Jerusalem Church?" And he says when he went to Thessalonica, when he went to Philippi, when he went to the churches in Macedonia, he, he encountered, despite their poverty, their great joy as a community was to come together in service by giving so richly, so generously. This is, this is striking, actually. In fact, he says they desired. it just kept coming. They wanted to give more. It sounds like he almost had to talk them back from their generosity, actually. They were so poor, and yet they just wanted to give, he says in verse 5, their very selves. Not just even, even little coins and denarii and what they had saved up. Their very selves they wanted to gift to these churches. It's, it's a pretty striking example of communal life, actually. But it, it, comes, it comes as a, a, a theme that we see through the Scriptures actually in Acts 4, we see these this little story of the early church. This is we're talking, but you know, weeks or months after Jesus had ascended, and Luke says that you know they were experiencing great persecution. Acts four is when Paul, Peter, and John get jailed and then released, and they returned back to the believers. So they're in this season of great persecution, and he finishes Acts 4 with this story of this little church, which is now growing, sharing its possessions with one another. This is the hallmark. We see a similar hallmark back in Acts 2. The hallmark of God's people gathered together is not primarily that picture that we saw at the start or which we might initially conceive of, when we think about meeting with god's people celebrating together which is primarily i guess consumeristic and 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 driven by consumption the picture in the bible of god's people meeting together is a picture of sacrifice and of generosity and of service outwards and it's a story that has marked god's people through the ages uh, maybe you remember these three people. They were in the Commonwealth Games recently. Uh, and, and the lady on the left, uh, who we can see side on, is Jess Stenson. She won the marathon, the women's marathon in the Commonwealth Games. It was a great moment, actually. I remember watching, I think it was a Saturday night. And, you know, you watch a marathon, you never expect an Australian to be up the front. But actually, these three Australian women were all up the front of the marathon. And they, they led from basically the start to the end Jess Stenson, she's a, she's a mum, she's kind of had a kid come back, won a marathon. Don't let that get you down if, if you haven't done similar. They're running the marathon, and, and the, the lady who's facing and sees Eloise Welling, she was leading with Jess Stenson. And the story comes out later, actually, after the marathon, that um, Jess Stenson got to her, her drink station halfway through the marathon, and... The practice is you have these kind of gels, these super high concentrated glucose gels, which you you know they use them in the, um, in the Tour de France and they use them in marathons because you can't run a whole marathon without consuming some kind of energy. You just burn so much over the... And so you take these gels at various points to kind of perk up your energy. And the story comes out that she was meant to get a gel with her drink at one station, but for some reason her gel was left off, her drink and Eloise Wellings just kind of gave her her gel at that moment I mean for us who are non-marathon runners we think yeah great but this basically means that she can't win the race anymore she doesn't have the energy reserves anymore it's just a moment I mean you're running a marathon you don't do the you don't really do the maths you don't think okay I can pick up another one at the next station you just she just hands it over and as, as one of the journalists was reporting on this, they described this as this moment of reflexive generosity, re- reflexive sacrifice. Not really thinking about it. You just, you just give up something that's of great value to yourself for the sake of someone else. Now, the, the story which the journalist didn't report, of course, was Eloise Wellings is a believer. She knows and loves the Lord Jesus. Her testimony is widely available. She runs a, um, a charity for... Um, the disadvantaged in Uganda, actually. It's an expression of her Christian faith. It's little moments like that, though, which actually profoundly describe the the beauty of the gospel, where someone just gives something up without second thought to themselves for the sake of someone else. It's what we're seeing in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 with the Macedonians. It's what we see in the early church it's the story of God's people through the ages, patrons and, and financial benefactors who've just done, done extraordinary moments of generosity for the sake of others. It's what you see in the life of ordinary Christians. And the message that Paul is trying to convey, interestingly, in this passage, is actually just that the beauty of the gospel is expressed as we share and serve together. This is a constant message. The beauty of the gospel is not primarily in our articulation of truths those are foundational but the beauty of the gospel is primarily expressed in the new testament and in the life of the early church and god's people now as we share and serve together so when we think about celebrating together for the glory of christ this fourth characteristic of the church it's of our church This is the one that we've probably talked about the least in our life of our church. But over the course of the last two years, we've had this one there, and I've just reflected on it. I think I probably started saying, oh, I I think it would just be great for us to have these communal moments where we, we, we eat together and we celebrate together and we have a great time together. Of course those things are great. But if we're to take the Scriptures, the Bible, as our guide for communal life, and put that as the lens over our time together, it must be far more than that. I think it's actually a life together that's characterised by joyful service and generosity, which actually draws attention to Jesus, because that's what's happening in the Macedonian example, it's what happens in the early church, and it's what God's people have been doing through the ages. We say, actually, that celebrating together, far from being a consumption moment where we kind of all just turn up and receive something, is this wonderful moment of mutual service and generosity both to one another and outwards to other people as well. It's a, it's a moment that's reflexive. It's like, a, it's, it, it's like a muscle that's so well-trained, we don't even have to think about doing it anymore. It just happens. It might cost us, but it doesn't matter, actually, in some ways. That's kind of what we're talking about. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we long to see develop in the life of our church. How might that happen? Well, there's lots of different ways it could happen. I want to just focus on two things. Partly they're shaped by the, the, the nature of today and it being Mission Gift Day as well, but also, I think, shaped by the nature of where we're at as a church. So I think it, it can be expressed through these particular activities, right? giving and serving. I want to talk about giving first. I think, taking the lead. It's interesting, Paul says in the passage, you excel in all these gifts, now excel in the grace of giving. It's not enough, actually, to excel in every other gift, but then withhold your material wealth, Paul says. Because that's not, that's not the complete expression of grace. And so it, it is actually impossible to leave this off the life of God's people to go i i'm i'm like you i don't like talking about money i feel very squirmish about this sermon but i'm your pastor as well and i cannot pastor the congregation without talking about money equally because the scriptures just keep throwing up the use of our material possessions as a key measurement about whether or not the the life of the Christian has taken hold, the the life of the gospel has taken hold in us, giving. We are, interestingly, on one level, a very generous church for the size of our church. The the budget and the money we give away to people, very generous. And so if that is you, I just want you to be affirmed that you you are doing the very thing that Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do but there's there's more to the story than that the treasurer is telling me I, I don't know who gives what okay so you can you can breathe easy if i'm looking at you it's not cuz it's just cuz you look nice okay you look friendly i don't know who gives what oh i know how much we give but apart from that i don't know who gives what and that's the way it'll stay as far as i'm concerned the treasurer does know which is helpful just helps us to plan and understand where we're at and one of his pieces of feedback is about about 60% of our giving 60 or 70% of our giving comes from about 10 to 15% of our congregation. That's that might be surprising to us. Uh, because generally when there's been a need it's been met here. But that's because there's just some people who are exceedingly generous in our midst. Thank you if that's you. But it also lays a challenge for us, I think that we, those of us who are perhaps not in that 10 to 15%, are we enacting the gospel in our lives? Yeah. At NCLS, that's that survey I've been talking about, which we did earlier in the year. So this has nothing to do with our, our raw data figures, but this is what you said as you filled out the survey. 60% of people in that survey said they give less than 10% to the local church. I assume they're talking about us. They consider us to be their local church. Now, there is no number specifically in the Bible about how much you should give percentage-wise. Most people assume that 10% is the number. That's what a tithe was in the Old Testament. Although a tithe, the 10% number, is only one of many gifts that Old Testament uh, believers would have given. Actually, if you added them all up, it comes up to more like 25% of whatever they were earning, whether it's, it's resources or it's money, right? Now, I'm not saying you should give 25%. I guess my point, though, is that 10%, if that's the number that you're using, you're talking about the bare minimum there, right, in terms of the, the numbers that the Bible throws around for giving. So for those of us for whom 10% is, is we're in that 60%, again, the challenge is, is that are we expressing generosity in our giving? Together, life of, the life of the church, right? Let me bring it into a sharper focus in terms of Mission Gift Day. I spoke to, the, I spoke to uh, our Treasurer, Neil. Uh, I said, can you give me an update on where we're at with Mission Gift Day? Because today's actually the Mission Gift Day. So, but some people would have given electronically in the lead-up to it. We wanted to raise $20,000. We already raised ten grand before today. Wonderful. Thank you for your generosity. Except the story is a bit more complicated. That ten grand was, was raised through 10 households. Now, that doesn't mean the other numerous households in our congregation haven't chosen to give. It's obviously before the day. But there's a challenge for us. There's many more than 10 more households in our congregation. And we only have $10,000 to make. But wouldn't it be great if we just completely blew the lid off what we wanted to raise for our missionaries... Well beyond 20. If we raise $40,000 for our missionaries, you know what? That'll be the, it'll be the funnest week next week as I call each of them up and say, hey, guess what? We said we can give you this, but we can give you double that. Because the saints at St. Stephen's, their generosity welled up. They gave more than was expected of them. There's an opportunity here for us to really enact what Paul is describing in the Macedonian church. But also, it's not just finances, because he says they gave themselves, and he's describing something which is beyond simply a financial deficit that people incurred. He's describing a very self-sacrifice, an attitude of giving what is most, most valuable to them, of course, because money is valuable, but something even more valuable is your very self, right, which you use money to build And so, actually, when we talk about generosity, it is, of course, with our material possessions, but it must be with the things that are most valuable to us. I'll tell you what's most valuable to us here, in this part of Sydney, it's time. It's time. That's actually more valuable than even money for us. It's time. It's what we spend our time on. In fact, our time leads to material wealth sometimes, but it's time. And so I want to say, I actually think... How we spend our time is a way of enacting our generosity too. One of the things we're seeking to really bring into the life of our church is this culture where we serve together in teams. This is a shift. We brought in early in the year and we have been slowly taking steps there, but there's much to do. The mentality behind this is a mentality which says we want to serve alongside people. We don't want to just get a job done. We See, when you're serving a roster, you put your hand up, you say, I can do it once every six weeks. And so the poor roster person, whoever they are, puts all the pieces together and eventually out comes you all once every six weeks and Jimmy bobs once every five weeks and we kind of make the roster up. But f- first of all, that means the service is really on your terms. right? It's not, it's not primarily serving others because you're actually putting a whole lot of stress on the poor roster person and, and the person who's made themselves available week in, week out, who covers every hole that otherwise exists. But also, you're not, you don't get the opportunity to serve alongside people because every time you're on with someone different. Now, serving together in teams is totally different. We've had two teams in, two or three teams in action this morning. The music team, all these beautiful people up here, character-wise, of course, uh, all these people, they're part of the music team It's been really great over the last 18 months to see the morning service music team start to take shape a little bit instead of just like you know one person on this week and one person on next week you might have noticed generally they seem to serve together when they're up here they're small teams but they get to do it together this week they've put a couple of teams together they need lots more people they want double the number of people in those ministries partly because they just want the joy of serving they had a great time this morning It was great just to walk in and see the team working well. There was a team in the kitchen. We're about to enjoy a great brunch. I walked in at like eight o'clock. They'd already been there for half an hour. They're having a great time. They're not burdened by it. I don't walk in and they're like, why did you give me this job? This is the worst, I'm thinking about leaving. They're they're having a great time. There's a buzz, there's an energy, there's croissants flying this way and that way. You know, There's people meticulously counting out quarters of strawberries. it's a great buzz. They're serving together. Can you see how that can actually be celebrating together while you're inhabiting the dynamic of service and sacrifice at the same time? You do it with God's people for the sake of others and for the glory of God. I think serve this, this, um, this, this shape of our life will take place in many spaces, but I think the primary space we'll see this is here on Sundays. Okay, on Sundays. So I've talked about four strategic pieces to our puzzle: um, gap groups, outreach, kids and youth ministry, and the fourth one is our Sunday services. I think this is the other thing we want to really focus on developing because Sunday services are a shop front. I think my predecessor Graham used this language as well to describe our Sunday services. They're a shop front, they're shop windows. Or to, the, to, the, to the gospel and our church life. They give people an opportunity to encounter the community of God's people, living out the very dynamic of the gospel in, in here on Sundays. And so I think, actually, the starting place for all of these things to seed and take, take root and flourish is here in our Sunday fellowship as we give and share and serve together. So that's taking the Macedonian example, that's taking the vision of life together in the Scriptures and applying it to us. The question is, what, do, what can derail us, I guess, from this? Because that's what Paul's writing about. And I think there's two things that we have to be wary of when we come to thinking about generosity in our life. They emerge, one of them emerges very directly from Paul's writing. See what he warns the Corinthians here? He says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. In other words, he says, it's so great that you have desired to be generous, now actually do it. This, as I read this this week, uh, reflecting on it for this morning's message, I was very convicted about this. I I am a procrastinator when it comes to generosity. You know, someone will send me an email who I'm supporting and say, we need help. I think, I can support them with this. I can give them some money. So I'll go to their website. I'll go to the Give page, and they'll need my credit card details. I don't have it. Um, I'll get back to it. And then I just never get back to it. I, I think, I've got to do that. But then, you know, something comes up, and I just don't get back to it. I don't know if this is you, but I think this is a lot of people. They have the intention to give, but but they never do it. And and see, Paul is saying it's not good enough to have the desire to be generous. You actually have to be generous. You actually have to be generous. And I think sometimes the reason we're not generous in those moments, I can't give myself a free pass that I'm just disorganised. I think it's because something is more important in that moment than being generous to that person. Because I could just get up, go and find my credit card, and come back and put it in. See, sometimes we let ourselves off the hook. We say, I want to be generous. I have a desire to be generous. I want to serve. I have a desire to serve. But we never actually do it. And Paul says to the Corinthians, it's great you've got the desire. But you need to complete it by actually doing it. Actually doing it. Maybe you've sat in this building, you've thought, I really do want to serve. I should get onto that. And it's just never materialized. Don't put it on the staff or the ministry team leader for not contacting you. Just get up and do it. Write it on the Connect card today. And then they'll contact you. If they don't contact you, then it's on them. But if, if, they, if you don't put it down, you, you, it's not enough to have the desire. You might want to give to Mission Gift Day. You, you walk out of here energised. You think, yeah, I'm really I'm motivated. I I'm want to share in the grace of God. And then you've got to go home and do it. You've got to click on the link. You've got to click on that PayPal link. You've got to write in three numbers. You've got to press submit. doesn't sound that hard, really, does it? But you've got to do it because the desire is not enough, says Paul. The second thing, though, is that I think we can actually be generous but for the wrong reasons. We can actually give but have the wrong motivations. You can have the right motivation but not give. You can give but have the wrong motivation. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. It's an interesting thing to say. But he's saying it because he lives in a culture where generosity was a virtue marker. right? And you know what? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in our culture. There are some generous people, but a lot of people, I don't want to smear everyone's generosity with this, but a lot of people give in order to be seen to be generous. Okay? Emily and I, our family's in a, a food co-op. This is where you, you put all your money together and then you buy you know, fruit and veg at a much lower wholesale price because you're buying a large large amount. And there's about 15 to 18 families in it. They're all lower North Shore. They're spending between 100 and 200 at least on fruit and veg, which is not that hard to do when you've got kids. Anyway, the lady who runs the co-op sends us an email a few months ago saying, oh, I really want to raise some money for the families who are flood-affected in Lismore. So him and I thought, OK, well, yeah, that, that's, that's a good thing. Let's give them 100 you know, We spend like 150 bucks or more every week on fruit and veg. Let's give them 100 bucks." lady comes back and says, oh, I just wanted to check that that's the right number. You hadn't made a mistake. Yep, all good. Anyway, two weeks later, we get an email from her. She says, "I just want to—it's to everyone in the group, right?" She says, "I just want to thank you all for your generosity. We've managed to raise $130 for Lismore. It's because the power of generosity, which was affirmation, was missing. You see, no one knows who gave what to whom. The left hand didn't know what gave to the right hand, right?" and suddenly the reason for people to be generous is just gone. I mean, this is such a striking example. I didn't make this up. I've been storing it up for this sermon, though. <laughs> it's just so striking to me. And I just, I'm, I'm slightly depressed about where we live. There's a veneer of niceness here. Everyone's nice to everyone. No one really cares about anyone. I'm being perfectly honest, right? There is a veneer of niceness. No one will say anything rude to you at the gate when you go to pick up your kid. They're all smiling. Ah, how's your day? Busy? Yeah. How's the renovation? Yeah, good. There is a veneer of niceness. But what Paul is describing about God's people together is far more than that. He doesn't want you to be nice, he doesn't want me to be nice. He wants us to be reflexively generous and sacrificial to one another, other people. That's what he wants. He's deeply encouraging the Corinthians, who were this church that had, for a period of time, become so self-obsessed, so convinced of their self-importance. And they're coming out of that, and that's why he writes this this second letter. It's probably your third. We've lost the second. He, He wants them to keep going now. He wants there is no place for a veneer of niceness. Although, you know, as you think about it, you think, is it really possible? Is it really possible to have that kind of generosity where literally the right does not know what the left is doing, where you just hand it over without a thought? It's one thing to hand over a gel, but, like, for that to be all of your life? I think the answer is yes. The absolutely Yes but it's not you, it's not me, it's not Eloise Wellings. The place we see it is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's point in this passage. The place where you see this complete devotion to reflexive, genuine, sincere generosity is Jesus Christ. Look what he says right in the middle of this passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor. Paul's not talking about material wealthy. I mean, Jesus was materially wealthy because he owned everything, he created it all. Of course he's materially wealthy, but he's not talking about that kind of wealth. He's talking about the wealth that comes from being the one and only son. He's talking about the kind of wealth that comes from being the one through who all things were created, who is who is in inexpressible glory and light. He is talking about the one who was before all things and through all things exist and have their being. That's the kind of wealth, glory, majesty that he's talking about. He's talking about the one who, when the father sees him at his baptism, says, This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased with. doesn't say that about anyone else, no one else gets that. This is the one who, when he stands on the mount and is transfigured in glory, Peter and John just babble incoherently. They don't know what's going on. It's so shocking to get a glimpse at the wealth and majesty and glory of Jesus. This is his wealth, this is his richness. And Paul says he becomes poor. And that means it doesn't just mean he had no place to leave his head, although that is true. It doesn't mean he becomes a peasant carpenter in Palestine in 1st century AD, although that is true. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that he gives up everything. He gives his very self. In fact, throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each time they talk about Jesus' journey to the cross, they say, they use this phrase, Jesus says, I'll be spat upon, mocked, and insulted. He doesn't say, I will have nails driven into my hands, and my sinews will be broken, and my bones will be shattered, and blood will pour from my side. Of course, all of that's true, but none of that, all of that pales into comparison to the one who was inexpressibly glorious, being treated like the muck of the earth. Who goes from the pure Son of God, to being treated like the worst of criminals. And yet Christ reflexively, immediately, willingly, for the joy set before him, the writer of Hebrews says, hands it over. Hands it over. And, And he does that for us. Why? Because Paul then goes on to say, you, that is you, me, us, through that moment of great poverty Are made rich Are brought into his family Are given the great inheritance Do you know You know Prince George The oldest son of Prince William And Catherine Middleton Princess Catherine um, The kid doesn't earn a cent He's a moocher Doesn't earn a cent I don't think he actually owns any property okay? He's poor But of course, his father is the heir to the throne. And so he's inexhaustibly rich. So much more for you if you're in Christ, says Paul. So much more. You are worthy if you're in Christ. You're loved if you're in Christ. You're treasured if you're in Christ. Such is the richness of the gospel. To the extent we believe that, you see, we don't have to fear giving our stuff up. Prince George can give everything he has up, he'll still be inexhaustibly rich for who his father is. So it is with you and I. You don't have to fear the anonymity of generosity, as your father sees, so the scriptures. You know, we've We started the series looking at our vision statement. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse, and large by the gracious work of Christ. Really, we're talking about we long to see deep spiritual renewal. And generosity is the key to spiritual renewal. Not because God needs your money. He doesn't. Not because God needs your time. He doesn't. He owns every sheep on the hills, he says. He doesn't need it but because the kind of generosity Paul is talking about says something deeply, deeply about us. First of all, it's compelling to the outsider. When people meet that kind of generosity, they can't help but want to know more about it and talk about it. But more importantly, it shows us where our real trust is. It, It conveys where our real trust is. It conveys that we've actually come to believe the gospel, And so actually the generosity is a symptom of the spiritual renewal we're talking about. When people come to grasp how rich they are in the gospel, what flows out is what happens with the Macedonians, who long to give their very selves for the Lord Jesus and for his people. So I really commend this to you. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for those who've gone on the journey this last month, praying, bringing, growing. Celebrating together. Let us be a church marked by the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary reflexive generosity that is at the heart of who you are and is the heart of your son's action for us, where he willingly, for the joy set before him, set aside everything of worth and value, Lord God, would that truth so permeate our hearts and transform our lives, not just us individually, but us as your
0: church here in Willoughby. In Jesus' name, amen.